Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We book yes, we've got a book sale going right on here. Uh, yeah, Tony's visiting her mom right now today. So Tony's not here today, so again, I'm on my own. I did have this for you right here, a, a calendar, uh, which is December. Just showing you what we're going to not be doing during uh, the holidays. Uh, there's no class on Christmas or Monday or Tuesday following Christmas. No class on New Year's or Monday following New Year's. We will start class again then on Tuesday the 3rd. Basically, we're following the school vacation <laughs> calendar for Mr. <laughs> Weemers, the shop teacher. So once I go on vacation, I'm on vacation for two weeks or a week and a half. And again, it's like, well, you should have church on Christmas. I think you should have church on Christmas and, and New Year's. Uh, but we have Bible study three times a week, so we're going to call it that way. So you can, you can judge that if you want to. But at the same time, uh, that's what we're going to do. Ah, in fact, you know, it'd be nice to go to church on Christmas. I mean, obviously you do uh, go to church, but I mean, you know, with the singing and the festivities and the focus on Christ's birth, and we're not going to stop and teach that. In fact, we're going through the book of Mark right now on Monday night, so we are covering the Christmas story, and we will for the next four years. Uh, so it's a little different situation here. Uh, we are talking about the theology of James today, looking at, as you see on your notes, going through several areas. We're going to just kind of point some things out. Of course, it's going to be a rush. I don't want to spend two weeks on this. There's 12 areas. But what I got right here on the table, just uh, for your information, just to see, these are, for example, theologies. This is a, a four-volume set by Lewis Berry Chafer, founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. This is his theology, biblical theology. Uh, we Over here, we've got Gessler's four-volume set. Uh, which is very nice. Now, if you're online, you can cheer for whoever you support and the, the different universities they come with. Here's Hodges, three-volume set of, of Hodges, or excuse me, Hodge. But uh, again, that's going to be an older set. Some of these are, Gessler just passed away. Uh, Sp uh, Chafer was active in the early 1900s. Uh, here is uh, uh, Guthrie, his volume. Now, there's just single volumes, Guthrie. Here's one by Odin. Here's Chafer and Walver. Chafer followed, was followed by Walver at Dallas, and he combined the theologies in this one. Uh, over here, we've got another set by uh, Odin, a whole three-volume set. And we go through, we've got Erickson here. We've got Charles Ryrie. He's got his own theology. I use this at Iowa Christian Academy for the theology book there. Uh, Thiessen right here. Ah, the man, John Kelvin, his institutes right here. And then this one, uh, Grund Grunham. Uh, or yeah, Grudem, Grunem, how do you say it? Grudem, and that's again a volume, and covers all these areas, and everything's going to be, especially in biblical theology, the, s the, the categories are going to be generally the same, uh, you're going to have theology, then you're going to have bibliology, you're going to have Christology, and those are just the areas you're developing the idea of how do you view the Bible, theology, how do you, you view, view God, Christology, how do you view Christ, and Jesus and redemption. There's a soteriology, the study of salvation. Uh, ultimately, there's going to be ecclesiology, the study of the church and what we are today. How does that come out of Scripture? And then it always usually ends with eschatology, which is the study of end things. Uh, that is biblical theology. Now, you can get into Lutheran theology or liberation theology or you go postmodern theology. I mean, you've got, these can branch off into your own little, there's charismatic theology. Uh, so this is what I use, what I try to stick with is biblical theology, not that I don't have my own slants and views on it, but it keeps, it keeps it in the text and doesn't so much study, uh, a lot of times you can get into the history, what did they teach medieval theology, 
and or Catholic theology, or you get a Methodist theology, or whatever, and you get into those little camps, which is fine if that's what you want to study. I kind of want to try to stay on the Bible. What is the Bible teaching? And then maybe end up in a camp somewhere. But we're, I'm standing on the scriptures. That's my goal. That, that should be everyone's goal. Of course, I'm not flawless. I will have my different perspectives and things. But anyway, uh, James, we read through the book last week. I feel bad. I better get for my video clip. I want to at least have a video clip of me holding the Bible <laughs> right here today. Uh, uh, I'm going to be basically reading through the notes and referring to the book of James. We did read through the whole thing last week, the book of James, and we will start next week, James chapter 1, verse 1, and start exegeting through the scriptures or looking at them. But here's the idea right here, James, uh, introduction to the third set of notes on James. Uh, I just some highlights here. I got 10 points right here as we begin this, as we look at this. Uh, first of all, some say that James doesn't have any theology or it's incomplete theology. Uh, we're putting the writing of the book of James, as you know, let's just say uh, 45 B.C. And you can see I, I fluctuate around right around that time. That's approximate. And he's writing to the land north of Israel. So we'd say like Syria, which would include Antioch and Galatia and those areas up there. They're going to be the coast is going to be the main thing is going to be on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And so it's going to tend to be, I'm going to say, a Jewish population that has accepted Jesus Christ as Messiah, and they have either are still in the synagogue or they've branched out and formed their own synagogue assembly, we'd say church, and this is the group they're writing to. So this is, again, that, that's important to understand who he's writing to, because if they're, they're Jewish, they already understand the law of Moses, and, and the prophets always refer to the law of Moses. Thank you for saying something. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I could hear the murmuring in the crowd. It's like there's something wrong on the board, and it's right now that I spelled Syria wrong. And so, yeah, 45 A.D., thank you. That's why we need group participation. Thank you. Uh, a Jewish group, most likely, again, because it, he doesn't address Gentiles or Gentile issues, uh, doesn't address the circumcision issue that came up in 48 A.D. at the Jerusalem Council and the, in the months before that. So, He's assuming they've got the law, and this law is going to be the basis of their ethics. Uh, there's nothing here in the book of James that talks about the ritual of the law. And on the very back page, I'll refer to it later, I've got something I copied out of one of my commentaries, just took a photo of it, is they're comparing James' reference to ethics and Jesus' reference to ethics in Matthew and Luke on the Sermon on the Mount and how they correlate. And it, it applies from the law. He's, they're talking, they're, their basis is the law. But God's nature, the first thing we're going to see is God's got a nature, and that nature is revealed in the Word, which is also the law of Moses or the law that was given. And we as believers, or as even Jews, we're just supposed to have that as their basis of their ethics. Now, both Jesus and uh, uh, James here in this book appear to just bypass the ceremonial rituals and go right to the heart of the law. This is what you should do. And again, it's not unlike Paul, because Paul, once you are saved, there's going to be this standard of ethics you should live by, and that ethics is based in the Word of God, which for Paul wasn't the New Testament, because it was being written. It was what had been revealed by God before, the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, who always referred back to the law. The prophets always referred back to the law and condemned the people for not they didn't always, very rarely do they condemn the people for not offering sacrifices. They condemn them for offering sacrifices with no meaning to it. Meaning you're doing the rituals, but you're not, you haven't progressed in your 
ethics, moral character. So again, th- this is going to be one of the challenges of this. So there's our Jews, there is a law in here, but it's not ceremonial. And I think as we look at this, it's going to be in agreement with what Paul was shooting for also. Uh, anyway, that's enough on that right there, because we've already established that, but that's going to kind of be important. Going on down here, uh, point two, uh, safe to say that James was written in the 40s, there I've got the date, uh, before the theological debates. Now, as you go through church history, even in the 1800s, there became great debates about uh, ecle- eschatology, on what is the church, early church, in not early church, but throughout church history, a lot of things were just assumed, they'd make statements, but in the 1800s, you began to really see things starting to split off. You're going to have the, the, the tribulation, you're going to have the pre-trib, mid-trib, and eschatology kind of develops in the 1800s. Uh, other until that time, it was more of an ideal of either Christ is going to come back, set up a kingdom, or we're going to be taken away into this future kingdom somewhere, and it just kind of leaves it at that. Ecclesiology, the study of the church, that really developed in the Protestant Reformation because all of a sudden you've got the Catholic Church said and done for 1,500 years. The Catholic Church, you are a member of the church. If we kick you out, you're out of the church. Well, start your own. You can't. We're the church. You can't start the church because we are the church. Well, Martin Luther started the church. And he just left. And then others said, oh, we'll start our own church. Then pretty soon now you got Protestantism where you just got churches popping up all over. Hey, the front row's open right here. <laughs> there's one chair left in the back. Or there's two there. There's two there if you want them. Uh, and so ecclesiology said the church developed, especially after the 1500s. And as things went on, especially like around 400, 300, 400 A.D., 300s would be more like bibliology, when are, what is included in the Scripture. You know, they had to decide, throw out which books which are, were going to be accepted, what had been accepted by the church. 400, you're going to get into the ideal of, of anthropology, man, the sin nature, and soteriology. How are you saved? Are you saved by God's election? Are you saved by your, your choice? And, it, and Augustine's going to address that. Polygius is involved. And there's going to be church councils that are going to meet to address each of these issues as they come up. Now, that means if, if James is written, let's say, 45 A.D., He's writing before uh, Paul writes, you know, say 1 Corinthians in 57 A.D. Uh, Galatians is going to be written right around, say, 48 A.D. by Paul. So all these issues that are going to be addressed here that Paul's going to bring up are, are going to already be either uh, just assumed but not, in a sense, argued and developed. And what James assumes, I think, as we see, is what James assumes for theology aligns up with everything that's going to develop later on. That's why it's in the Bible. He doesn't have theology like, ah, oh, that's not right. We're going to fix it. It's, it's accepted here. It just hasn't gone through the hammering out of theological debates. And you can see the hammering out of a theology debate in, in Acts chapter 15 and 48 AD when they come down, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? And they argued, the Pharisees argued this side. The believers who were Pharisees argued their side. Peter and Paul, they argued their side. James was kind of the head of the council. They all discussed these things. And they came to a conclusion, hammered it out, and wrote a letter that the first church council in 40 AD, no, the Gentiles do not need to follow the law. We don't even follow the law. We can't follow the law. But we need to mature in these areas. And so that, there you have your first hammering out of a theology debate written down in the book of Acts. James is writing even before that. So a lot of the things he's writing uh, is not theoretical. Now you can see in Paul... I'll mention this and we'll see it again. Paul ends up getting uh, theoretical in a sense sometimes. He starts talking about the exalted Christ. Uh, you know, 
and the idea that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. I mean, these are true. These are true, but he's identifying where we are, we are here today, uh, but we're also positionally with Christ. We are positionally in Christ now, but yet we're here in the temporal, and we get into some, what we'd say, theory. Uh, and, and, and then from there, he then makes, he always writes, therefore, since that's the theory, since that's true, therefore, this is how you should live. James, if I can say it this way without being, you know, overstating, skips the whole theory and just goes to write to therefore. You should be living this way. And his theory is basically the law. I mean, this is God's nature. This is what God revealed. You're supposed to be taking care of the poor. You're not supposed to be abusing the poor. It's like, what's your theory? I mean, he's talking that we, 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 the law, we've already, we're past theory. We're into application. You should be doing these things. Paul has to address the changes that have been made with Christ coming, dying, being resurrected, and seated at the right hand of God over all the rulers and authorities. So there's, I don't want to say, there's no tension there. There's just a little bit of a difference. Uh, point three. Uh, point three, uh, it is different than saying James has incomplete or zero theology, that he's, he's before the, the, the debates. Point four, it is also true that the book of James does not address every area of theology. Uh, point five, obviously, that James held to a theology that was consistent with the Old Testament. And there is a precise alignment. This is just flat out true. There is a precise alignment between Old Testament and New Testament theology. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so God's ethics are the same. So you're going to be able to, you can go back to the Old Testament and find ethics, find references that apply to the New Testament. The difference is the New Testament, we're going to see, even in the book of James, is eschatology. Eschatology has begun. The end times have come. The Christ has manifested. He is become a man and he's died on the cross, and we are now in a new age. The eternal covenant is now in place. So we have crossed over, but we haven't crossed this off. We've just found fullness and completion, and we're heading towards the return of the king, which James is going to address. Uh, and so there's, your, in a sense, a difference. It, it's still aligned, and so it's easy for James, talking to Jews, to talk from their Old Testament, just take this over, and we begin to apply it here. And again, he's writing... Uh, early on point seven james is addressing specific issues and areas so he is not writing theology he's not trying to explain to the corinthians or explain to the ephesians the theology of christ being exalted and us being born again he's simply addressing you are a church you already know the law you're already accepted the word of life and now you're not doing it so we need to improve here we need to improve here he's addressing specific issues which again is no different than Paul writing to the Galatians or the Corinthians or the Thessalonians. You need to improve these areas. So he's got a specific issue he's writing to. So James' response, his advice and commands are rooted not in his opinion, his answers, the things that he's writing, his answers to these conflicts, these problems are rooted in theology. He has theology. He knows what he believes. He knows what his, his people believe. You understand. Well, now... This is the answer then. This is what you need to do. They're incomplete. So he's not like, well, I don't have any theology, but you just need to be good people. You need to start being good people. It's like, no, what the, his answer is is based in an understanding of who God is and all the areas of theology. And we'll, we'll see that hopefully if I keep hurrying. 
James point eight is not not yet yeah, point eight. It, James is not evangelizing. See, where's the evangelism? He's not evangelizing. James is not writing apologetics or debating with uh, a Greek Corinthians uh, about the resurrection. He's talking to believers who are in the church or the assembly uh, that have already accepted the theology, accepted the truth, accepted the word, but you're not doing it. Now, if you're talking to an unbeliever, you've got to get them, we're trying to convince you that this is the truth and accept the truth, humbly accept the truth. If you're talking to a, a, a pagan or something that you're arguing apologetically, this is why Christianity is viable. This makes sense. But if you're talking to someone that's already accepted it, it's like, well, you've already accepted this. You need to start doing it. These are the 10 things you're failing at in your growth. So that's the group James is talking to. Uh, point nine, James' concern address i forgot an apostrophe there james's concerns addressed in this letter are determined by the location and the time that he was writing and these are different than the time and location that paul was writing or john was writing and i write this down james was a pastor in the 40s a.d on the eastern side of the mediterranean writing to jewish believers Paul now is an apostle going into Gentile territory in the 50s, you know, and 60s, uh, in Asia, Greece, Italy, and he's writing to Gentile readers who they don't even need to understand the law of Moses in the way the Jews have come out of it culturally. They do need to understand the Old Testament, but the James writers have actually practiced the law on the Temple Mount. Paul's readers are somewhat familiar and they're going to have to understand the old testament like we have to understand it but you're never going to have the experience of going to the temple and worshiping in the temple so it's a different and john now is going to be writing in the 90s ad at the earliest 85 more likely 90s for sure revelation in, in 96 uh but in the 90s ad that's after jerusalem has fallen the jews are scattered they're under the fourth cycle of discipline and he's writing to Jews and Gentile readers combined in, in Christian churches in Asia. So again, you can see the 40s, the 50s, the 90s. And so your whole conversation is going to be different because you're, it's a different time, different locations. Doesn't change the truth, doesn't change the, the, the theology, but it does matter on how, how it sounds in the letter. And if you put separate Jane, John writing in 90s AD from James writing in the 40s, that's a 50-year span James is writing while the temple's in full operation and the churches, Paul hasn't even written anything yet. Where John is writing, Paul is dead, Jerusalem has fallen, and he's in Asia Minor, and Rome is, uh, is a, a bigger, more powerful base than even before, and that's how he's writing. So, and he's under persecution. And point 10, James is not presenting and developing theories, I already said that, the exalted Christ like Paul is, but applying accepted truth. Okay, here is the 12 areas and again, I don't want this to just be rote and, and, and uh, boring and monotonous, but uh, we, I do want to get through this, so hold on, here we go. The first area, theology. Basically, theology, theo means God, ology means the study of, so theology means the study of God. So although we call this, you know, basic theology, the first area of theology is theology the study of God. And in James, God is seen as a person. He has a nature. And God's person and, and na personal nature are revealed in his word. 
that that word will then determine his plan and purpose for our lives and for history. So right away in the book of James, we have a clear understanding. The person and nature of God are determined, and that reveals what his plan and his purpose for us and history is. So you already know what's going on. You're not confused. You know what's happening. Uh, Christians are to live fully aware of God's nature and live in line with God's nature. Once you know God and know his nature, and you are a follower of God, you are a believer, you have committed yourself to God, you now are responsible to live in line with that God. It's one thing to say, yes, I know there's a God, but I'm going to live this way. Another thing to say, I believe, trust, I'm, I'm uniting with God and live another way. One is, rebe- one is just like, I'm not even going to accept him. One is, I've accepted him, but I'm going to live in rebellion towards him. And James's readers, if you say you've accepted him, you really need to start living in line with his nature, and his nature has been revealed. Chapter 1, verse 5, point E. This describes God from the book of James. God gives generously without finding fault, so believers should, because that's true, the point there was, so you should ask for wisdom. God will give generously without finding fault. You need wisdom, ask for wisdom. And wisdom then would be, the ability to know what to do and how to handle situations and what God's intention is. If he's revealed his purpose, I don't, I don't really understand it. Well, ask him. He'll reveal his purpose, and that will help you endure till the end. Uh, God is good, and his gifts are good. That's chapter 1, verse 17. Also, 117, God is unchanging, which supports the Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, this is uh, the same. God is unchanging. So God's ethics in the Mosaic Law would be the same ethics the prophets were rebuking Israel for, which would be the same ethics Jesus was demanding of his followers, which is the same ethics that James and Paul and John are expecting the people to have, because he's unchanging. Uh, Another point, chapter 1, verse 13, God is not enticed by evil, so God cannot entice others or you by evil. In other words, another way of saying that is, God's nature is such that he doesn't even understand evil. Evil is foreign to God, so he's not tempted by evil, nor because he doesn't, I'm paraphrasing this in Galen terms, since God doesn't understand evil, he's not going to be able to use evil to tempt you. Evil's going to have to come from someone that understands and is part of evil, which would be your sin nature or Satan, and that's all going to come up in the book of James. But it's clear your problems are not created by God as far as this evil temptation. Chapter 2, verse 19, the oneness of God, when James writes, uh, twice he refers to God being one. Uh, chapter, uh, well, let's see, I don't even have it written down there. But you believe in, in God, you believe that God is one, you do well. And 4.12, there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy, and Jesus is that one lawgiver and judge. So God is one. Now right away, right away, God is one. He says it right there. But right away, there's, there's a conflict because God is one, and Jesus is, and there's one lawgiver and judge. I'll just say judge, one judge, and Jesus is the judge. So it's like, there's God is one, there's only one lawgiver and judge, and Jesus is that judge. Okay, so, well, Jesus is God, but now, now, right there, now, 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 now you all of a sudden you need the Trinity. It's like, now you're going to have to have, now all of a sudden God one doesn't mean singular, it means 
united. It means a one unit. For example, same word in, in we talked about before. When um, Adam and Eve were married, the two became one. The two became one flesh, or they became one new unit. There were still two individuals, Adam and Eve, but now you've got a new group over here, a unified group called marriage. And that was a new union. And the same thing, what is going to be said here in theology, see, now see right there, there's the doctrine of the Trinity hanging right there, but, but John, uh, James doesn't develop it, he just kind of understands it. Well, now there's going to be arguments and people are going, how do you explain this? And we talked about the Trinity before. But basically it comes down to, you've got God the Father, you've got the Son, you've got the Holy Spirit, the three, but they're all unified in this one Godhead called what we say is God. But are you talking about the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, or all of them? It's like, well, you can't have three equals one. Well, you can in marriage. Two equals one. Husband and wife equals one, this new unit. It's a unified front. It, they're all the same, the same place. Uh, anyway, that's, again, just pointing out that there is, he addresses that it's hanging right there. And it's a stumbling stone, which leads to the next point, point two, Christology, the second area of theology. Jesus is mentioned two times. I'll read them. Chapter 1, verse 1. He just is mentioned here. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you've got God and Jesus Christ, and James claims to be a servant of both, or of the one. Uh, otherwise, you could write James, a servant of God, who is also, a, uh, and Jesus Christ, who is also a servant of God. He doesn't say James is a servant of God like Jesus is a servant of God. He, he's a servant of God and Jesus Christ. Uh, and so again, it's, that's, there's that connection that's just assumed. Chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Uh, again, don't show favoritism. That's going to be one of the ethics based on the law that's written very clearly in Deuteronomy. Don't show favoritism. But here it is. Be, why should you not show favoritism? Because you're a believer. You've accepted. You're trying to be united with the glorious. That's a deity term. Lord, which is used for God and Jesus in this book. Jesus, the name of the man, and Christ the Messiah. So you've got glorious Lord Christ all circling around the man Jesus. Glorious Jesus is God. Lord Jesus is God. And Christ, Jesus is the Messiah who is throughout the Old Testament equated with God. Uh, and so anyway, there's two references. Those are your two references of Jesus. Where's Jesus in the Bible or in the book of James? Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. He's mentioned. Uh, point three under Christology, James uses Lord, which is the Greek word kurios, to refer to Jesus four times. Because it's not, it's not like in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, when it's Yahweh, we know it's, Yahweh is spelled capital L, capital O, capital R-D, all capital letters. Adonai, which means Lord, Master, Sir, is spelled capital L-O-R-D. So this would be in the, Adonai, Oh, I'll just scribble. Adonai. Adonai is like this. It means master. Yahweh is written this way, capital. So this is the personal name of God. This is a reference you could call Nebuchadnezzar, sir. You could call Hezekiah, sir. You could call anybody, sir. You could call Boaz, sir. Or you could call the Lord, sir. Uh, but it's not his personal name. It's more of a title. So we're not talking about either of those words because those are the Hebrew words. We're talking about 
kurios in the Greek, which means Lord, which is the same thing, Sir, Master. Four times it's used to refer to Jesus, but this word kurios is used ten times to refer to God. So it's not the name Yahweh, but it is Adonai, in a sense, in the Greek. It means Sir, Master, and that's used ten times to refer to God and four times to Jesus, which again... uh, a pretty good indication that James is casual with his understanding that Jesus is God. He's not arguing the point. He's not slipping into it. He's not trying to prove it. He's just writing that this is what I know, this is what you know. He doesn't even, like, I've even killed the topic right here of too much information. He just says it because you already know. Just like I might say Jesus is Lord. You, I don't even say, now when I say Lord, I mean, and describe it, I just say, you know, I mean Jesus is God, there's a trinity, and you understand that. Well, James seems to be writing in the sense that he uses Lord for God, he uses Lord for Jesus. Hmm, that's going to confuse the people. I better explain this. He doesn't, he just does it because he knows he's the, what you're confused about is you're not following him. You're not doing the ethical standards of the Lord. And so that's what his argument is. He's not trying to say, you're confused about who Jesus is. Paul will do that. Paul will argue the theology or the theory because he's trying to bring the Gentiles into a correct theology. Or James is just writing as if you already know it. Again, that's what I'm saying. That's what you're going to have to judge as you read through the book. Um, interestingly, very interestingly, James does not mention Jesus' death or resurrection it's like what he must not really believe he must not really know this must not be part of early christian faith or they just all know it i mean do i tell you every bible study that jesus died and jesus was resurrected or do we just start talking about the bible see again i I repeat myself a lot i know this i know that's a problem my boys have pointed out to me Uh, i've had people come up me say you always start with this long review why don't you just get into the new material well, a lot of times because I forgot what we said last time and I'm reviewing to get my mind back on track, but I just act like I'm a teacher trying to help you, but I'm helping myself. But that's another whole topic. Uh, if every, every sermon, every class, you start with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I mean, what, how dumb are your people? I mean, what, are you evangelizing? Am I trying to evangelize you every week? I, I, okay, my point. James's audience doesn't need to hear about Jesus' death and resurrection apparently because that's a firm established fact if that makes sense so he just bypasses it but he moves on to the ethics in fact that would make james a very advanced book because he's way past evangelizing way past arguing the resurrection of christ he's over here we all know these things but you're not doing them it's like he's like and this is 45 a.d this is 15 years after the resurrection he's expecting the people within the last 15 years to have moved into some level of maturity but you're still sh- acting just like pagans. You're showing favoritism to rich people. You're, you're grumbling and griping about things. That, he says, do you understand you're judging people? And there's only one lawgiver and judge. That's Jesus. You judge yourself and do what's expected. And so it's a, in a sense, he's talking to a group that should be hitting some maturity in the first 15 years of the church if it's written in 45 AD. Anthropology. Uh, it would be the study of man and again this is not complete anthropology but what we do see is chapter 1 verse 14 and 15 man is tempted by his own evil nature and desires man produces uh man's nature produces sin 
and then man's sin produces death. And what he sees in man is this very thing, just like Paul talks about, Paul calls it the flesh, the sin nature. But you are born again. You have a new life. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So you've got, in a sense, two natures. You are a sinner with a flesh nature, but you are born again, and you can rise above that. You've been born again. Now, this is where James gets into you double-minded. It's like the fact is he's condemning them for being double-minded, but you're always going to be double-minded. It's just stop letting that happen. Because you're never going to get rid of this sin nature. It's going to be with you till the end. James is just saying, you look into a mirror, you see yourself, let's stay here, but you keep slipping back here. Paul refers to that as the sin nature uh, or the flesh. James refers to that here in anthropology. Uh, And this conflict, when man slips back into this, this is called worldliness. You need to be of this spirit not of the spirit of this age and worldliness. So he sees, uh, again, two natures within man uh, that, that produce the sin. Now, point four, does that make sense? I mean, that's, we don't need to spend time. It's interesting because Paul spends a lot of time developing that, especially in Romans. He develops that heavily in Romans, and that's so basic. I mean, you can see people, that's where uh, uh, perfectionism comes from. Uh, especially coming out of the Methodist movement of where you're going to cross the line. And I've heard people say that, you know, that they've, they've, they're no longer sin. It's like they've, I mean, if, when you mature and you understand if you're born again, uh, I've, I'm a, I've risen above sin. Well, okay, that's the goal, but it's like it's impossible because you've always got, you're always going to be double-minded. You've always got this nature right here that as soon as you think you've got it, you're, you're back here. It's like, ah, oh, get back over here. That's, Paul even says, what a wretched man I am. I mean, Paul, Paul was, he didn't say, oh, what a wretched man I used to be. He's writing the book of Romans saying, what are, I mean, I'm still, I'm that double-minded guy that James is warning about. I, that's me, because we've still got this nature. And that's where glorification takes place when you, you lose that, and you are now in eternity. So that is uh, basic to uh, Paul's writing. And you can see James not teaching it, but just, assuming you're 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 probably dealing with being double-minded it's like oh what's wrong with me nothing because that i mean that you're giving into it but you're always going to have it i was going to say perfectionism where they 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 thought that they could cross over and they're done with the sin nature that if you fasted prayed did something you it's like well now you're in now you're now you're in the false doctrine now you're deceived john john chapter one he who says i have no sin first john deceives himself as soon as you say, I have no sin, okay, okay, <laughs> now you're wrong. Okay, uh, point four, eschatology. I don't, I could, it's amazing how much stuff is in here, or at least how much, you know, I drew out of it, probably because uh, that's what we want to talk about. Uh, there will be a future judgment. He talks about the future judgment, and there's uh, several times uh, that believers should take action now. Because there is a future judgment, this is the basis you should be living ethical today because one that's god's nature and you're saying you're following god so start doing it but also that that one lawgiver he gave you the one law you should be doing this he's on the other side of history the one judge so over here he's the one lawgiver do what he says because you're trying to imitate his nature but if that's not good enough he's on the other side he's going to judge you in the end for not having done it so there is a future judgment. Chapter 1, verse 10 through 11. The rich in his humiliation, 
because of the he's like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the, the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away even in the midst of his pursuits now again doesn't especially talk about that could be a very secular statement everybody lives and dies but it's the idea of we're in we're transitioning through this age and there's an end to this which now becomes more clear point two so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment, is, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Point three, chapter three, verse one. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with great strictness. Now you see what's taking place right here. He's not teaching eschatology He's assuming eschatology, and if you're going to be a teacher, realize in the eschatological judgment, you're going to be judged more severely. So if you're going to now be rich, realize your wealth, it's going to pass away, and you're going to be held accountable in eternity for what you did with your wealth. Your wealth is not just here today, you'll be judged for it. So he's not saying, uh, he's not writing about, oh, there's going to be this future judgment. He's assuming you know there's going to be a judgment, so if you're wealthy, consider that. If you're a teacher, consider that. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, I don't have the whole thing written. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Point, chapter 5, verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, which is also interesting. He sees here in eschatology, and we'll bring this up in a moment, that point of Old Testament the coming of Christ, the New Testament, and then the judgment of the coming of Christ. Well, Christ came the first time right here. So when we crossed over here with the coming of Christ, we began eschatology. So they have, he sees them as being in this phase right here of your living in the final days. Now, he doesn't know 2,000 years, one th- how long it is, but this church age, or what he's referring to here, is the last age before Jesus returns and the kingdom is set up. And so he says even in 45 AD, that's what they call imminent, the judge is standing at the door. Now, when's he going to return? (laughs) He could return in 45. He could return anywhere in history. The judge is standing at the door. It's not like, you know, after Babylon falls and Rome rises and Caesar does this, then Jesus could come back. It's kind of like, no, the judge is standing at the door. He's ready to walk. He's ready to, John's words, he's ready to break that first seal right now. He's ready to begin the process. But he's waiting, and that's going to become part of the book. Because you know this is going to happen, one of the themes of the book is going to be wait, endure, be patient, this is going to be one of, this is one of the ethics because of this eschatology you know this is going to happen just wait hold your ground be ethical do what's right endure you're going to face persecution of course you're going to face persecution the whole world is against this you're going to have hard times and be patient don't don't become impatient just endure because you will be rewarded in the end now you may not see anything you may be poor see that's going to that's going to, you may be poor during this whole time but you will be rewarded. Anyway, we'll talk about that here in a moment. Uh, point B, uh, Jesus' return is expected, and that's chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, 
until the Lord's coming. Right here, I just wrote it right here. Be patient, brothers, until the, Lord's, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits. Now he's describing this phrase right here I just told you about. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It, it's it's going to happen. Now, when, we don't know. If you knew, you wouldn't have to wait. You wouldn't have to endure. You, you just know. You could set your clocks by it. Again, you still would have to wait, but I mean, it wouldn't be that enduring waiting. Jesus had, had come the first time to begin the end times. Jesus' return is near when he will complete this end. So he's recognizing that the Lord has come, but that the Lord is going to come again. So you have within there the first and second coming of the Lord. Jesus has revealed himself. There is a future kingdom, chapter 2, verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? See? Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? So again, we'll talk about the poor here in a minute. And current eschatology is recognized in Jesus, since Jesus had already come. Oh, God had already chosen those who were poor, and also the, he refers to the royal law that was already known and royal law would seem to be the, the law of the kingdom, the king's law, which is going to be connected to the Old Testament law. Again, not necessarily in all the rituals, but the same moral code, the royal law of the kingdom, is being implied to be enforced here for the believers. Uh, that's what chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now notice that. The royal law from the kingdom age, potentially, uh, that's according to the scriptures that they have possession of. And then he quotes an Old Testament verse out of Leviticus, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. If you're really doing that, you're doing good. Okay, pneumatology, point five. Oh, hey, Tony's not here. I don't have a clock. What time is it? You're in danger. You may be here until three o'clock. 20 till, okay. Uh, pneumatology, James never refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Like we talk about the Spirit came or being had the Spirit. But he does say this, but we have the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. There's a verse that says, the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, what spirit has he made to dwell? Is it my human spirit when I was born or conceived that he's made that spirit live in me? Or is he talking about the new birth and the spirit at the new birth he caused to live within me? I'm going to suggest right here, and this way we'll approach it, and if it falls apart as we read the text, uh, we'll have to make corrections. But the spirit that he has made to dwell in us is that same spirit that came into us when we were born again. He caused the spirit to come into us at the point of the new birth. And so now that we're born again, because that he says, uh, has sent to dwell in us, let me see where I'm at, the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, which would be the Holy Spirit. Uh, James does connect, and I do this myself, and you may want to disagree with this. It talks there, and I, I referred to it on Tuesday night, uh, in Zechariah chapter 8 verse 2 this is what the Lord Almighty says I am very jealous for Zion I am burning with jealousy for her and as we read through Zechariah we see that God has chosen and set his spirit his presence in Zion in Zion in Jerusalem in the Jewish people uh, this is and he's very jealous jealous or zealous he's going to use them he's going to preserve them he's going to take them and if they disobey 
he's going to punish them and then bring them back and try it again. He's not going to lose Zion. He's not going to lose Jerusalem. He's not going to lose the Jewish people. And if they live in rebellion towards him, he will burn Jerusalem. He'll send the Jewish people into exile. He'll plow Zion, but he's jealous for it. He's, they're his people. That's his, he's going to bring it all back. And will it, now, how many times does he have to judge them? I mean, that, that, that could just cycle through and throughout history. But eventually, he will accomplish his purpose for these people. He's jealous for it. Now, right here, the spirit that he caused to live in us, I'm saying at the new birth, the same term, the same idea, is very jealous, very zealous for us. And he's talking about worldliness. And you're living worldly. You're living in line with the world don't you know that the spirit he caused to live in you is jealous for you? And for, the, for us, it's like, well, what does that mean? Well, for the Jews, he was jealous for Zion. And he saw what happened to Jerusalem. They went into rebellion and then were brought back. Now he's jealous for us. If we live in rebellion, he's not going to give up on us. He's going to take us through this cycle of discipline or growth right out of, that's Hebrews chapter 12, that gets us where he wants us to be. Philippians, the good work that God began, he will complete it because he's jealous. You're his. It's like, this is not just you going, mm, sure, I'll, just a back row would be fine. No, you are born again. The spirit that he caused to live within you is jealous. He's going to take you as far as he wants to take you. Say, so, well, I don't really want to get that close. Just the back row. I just want to go to church. Just kind of be a Christian. I just don't want to go to hell. It's like, yeah, you don't just sign up for the back seat, don't go to hell ticket. I mean, you are front row, center of God, in God's plan. He's jealous for you. You're number one on his list, and he's going to form in you the will that he wants. It's like, oh, that sounds pretty intense. Yeah, it's God's jealousy. It's not just your high school girlfriend's jealous. This is God's zealous and jealous. Both words can be exchanged different ways. And meaning, he's going to accomplish his purpose in your life, which lines up with Paul. And it should sober the believer up to realize I, you're not just sliding through this. You start sliding and dragging your feet, you're going to get some rug burns because God's taking you to the top. Uh, that's pneumatology. Uh, there's, I skipped the suffering and testing part that's going to come up. Poverty and wealth. Uh, the, in the Old Testament, Jewish culture understood that God loves and cares for the outcast. Uh, he cares for the poor. I've got some verses written there. And the next thing was that since God's nature cares for the outcast, the poor, the homeless, the widow, widow, uh, widow, <coughs> the fatherless then in deuteronomy ten nineteen, you should love the sojourner or the alien for you were once that way in other words that's god's nature you should also do that uh in amos chapter 2 verse 6 through 7 here's the prophet prophet rebuking the people of israel for not doing what deuteronomy told them to do because that was god's nature for three transgressions of israel and for four i will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver now, this is taking place in our culture today. And the needy for a pair of sandals are destroying the middle class. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. And that's why judgment was coming to northern Israel. The poor are associated with righteous in Luke 6.20. Now, again, be very careful right here. This is, this is where James and Jesus are going to say the same thing. In Luke chapter uh, 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 6, verse 20, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So poor equals kingdom. Now, James is going to say something very similar, that it's the poor. Uh, do I have it written down here? 
the wealthy and the rich are often associated with the wicked because they have used the system to, of the world to get their wealth. And that's where Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So the rich equals woe or judgment. And James is going to write the same way. Now this is not, this is interesting. Now this is where you've got to remember the context and the time it was being written. This would seem to be in the simplest form an equation. If you're poor, the poor equals righteous. So all you got to do to be righteous is be poor. And if you have money, you're clearly evil. Now that would be a very, very simplistic way of writing and reading this, this text right here. Now I've got that written down right here. Point B, the application of a simple formula such as poverty equals righteous and wealth equals e- e- evil has several hurdles to clear and cannot be applied cons- conclusively. For example, the rich man in James's church must have been a believer. There's a rich man coming in, sitting in the front row. He must have been a believer to humble himself and join the believers. So now you've got a believer that's rich. For example, now he may have been an unbeliever. What's he doing in the church? Prosperity, especially enduring prosperity that is going to last, is also obtained by living righteously and doing things the way God designed them to be done. Meaning if you're going to live a righteous life and follow God's principles and live in reality the way God designed reality, it's going to produce enduring wealth. That's, that's common sense. Uh, prosperity is a reward from God. Not just in eternity, but we see there's reward. Jesus says, in this lifetime and the next, you'll have blessing. And the whole book of Deuteronomy is based on the, uh, you live righteously in the land, you'll enjoy the land. You don't, I'll burn the land down. Wickedness and rebellion to God's natural law will lead to chaos. Listen, if you are actually living in rebellion to God's written word and God's natural laws, you're going to create chaos, poverty, destruction, and death in your lifetime and your world. I mean, that's, that's common sense. You're, you're not living in line with reality. So that, that undermines this simple equation. A lot of times, evil is going to lead to destruction and poverty. Righteousness will lead to wealth. But in the context of 45 AD, the Jewish culture had a stat. They were the ones, they controlled the money at that time. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, those that were in this, the system that had rejected Jesus was the power base. Now, if you accept Jesus, you're going to lose your place in the world, and you're going to be ostracized from your family, your associates, your business. You're going to have less opportunity. You're going to be the righteous who accepted Christ are going to become poor because of that place in their culture. They're going to end up losing their business, losing their inheritance, losing their homes, and having to work in the fields and in the businesses of those who own the fields and the businesses, which are who? Those who rejected Christ and contained their position in the world. And now the believers are working for the wealthy. And so in this case, if you are righteous, you're going to be poor. And if you've got a field that are wealthy, most likely you have not confronted the worldly system. You're holding to the worldly system and have rejected Christ and God's will. And so that creates a a different dynamic here. It's an age of persecution, if that makes sense. Because, so when James writes, he's writing to, he's he's not writing theology, he's not writing a systematic theology covering all aspects. 
he's writing to his congregation you are poor because you've chosen christ and you've lost your inheritance you've lost your family you've lost your careers you've lost your fields you're here and you're working for the wealthy and they're ripping you off stay strong that's part of this system the world is going to abuse you. You stay strong. The king is coming. He's in, you, keep, you keep doing right. Don't use that as an excuse. So again, that's the poverty and wealth that we're going to see through here. Uh, C, the application of James' teaching should not be separated from his time and location. The believer in Jesus Christ would be marginalized in the Jewish community at this time. <coughs> uh, time. What time is time we got? Oh, we're at 10. Oh, still got 10. My gosh. I got all the time in the world. Uh, the law and the next point eight the law and the word of god and again be very careful right right here uh the law of moses or torah is assumed in james and is the foundation for james's teaching the foundation of james's teaching is not the writings of paul or the book of revelation the foundation of his teaching has to be the torah has to be the old testament uh, along with jesus teaching and jesus interpretation of the torah and 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 the law of moses and the prophets and i think we can see james and jesus are are side by side in agreement especially if you look at the last page so but be careful uh i think point c at no point does james ever make a reference to obedience to the ritual of the law james's focus is on the commands towards character and behavior the focus again is on believers having the nature of god which leads me to point d James could be said to have written before Paul that believers have died to the law but are yet responsible to fulfill the character of God revealed in the law. You're not held accountable for the rituals, but you understand what was covering the whole thing was God's character, his nature. Forget the rituals. Do you see the revelation of God? That's who you're following. And that's where Jesus doesn't, doesn't demand obedience to the law in the sense of the ritual but he does talk about obedience to the God of the law, of his nature. And if you go back and read through Leviticus, you read through Deuteronomy, you see a lot of not just rituals, but you see God's character. And it, again, that's what it appears, because he's not rejecting the law, and neither does Paul, because Paul talks about, even in Romans chapter 1, the law reveals, but he doesn't, you're not saying, well, I'll, I'll show that here in the next point. Uh, Point B, the law and the word, like the word of God, are used as synonyms, uh, potentially. Now, you don't have to accept this. But when James says law, it's like saying the word of God. And the word of God is given to reveal God's will, God's purpose. Chapter 1, verse 25, he refers to the perfect law that gives freedom. Now, notice he never says the law of Moses. He never says the law of the Old Testament. He does say law. But here he describes in chapter 1, verse 25, the perfect law that gives freedom. That is not like the law of Moses. The law of Moses gives bondage. In fact, Paul makes a big deal. You're in bondage to Mount Sinai. But he's talking about the law that gives freedom, meaning you take God's character, and this is what you're shooting for, especially that you've been born again. You are indeed, you are free <coughs> to now fulfill the law, and it gives you freedom. <coughs> again, this is, I don't want to say slippery, but it's like, don't let me oversimplify this. Chapter 2, verse 8. The believers were violating the royal law. Chapter 2, verse 8, which was love your neighbor as yourself. Chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. James states the unity of the law. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one part has become guilty of all of it. 
For he who says, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So he's clearly talking about the Ten Commandments right there. So it's like, well, he's meaning when he says the, the, law, that, the law that gives freedom or the, uh, the royal law. Well, he's talking about some other law. Well, here's a law that he's quoting right directly from the law. Uh, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Chapter 2, verse 12, James speaks to those who will be judged by the law of freedom. So speak and act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty or the law of freedom. Again, meaning you're not going to be held accountable for all these things, but you're held accountable to manifest the things that God has called you to do. Uh, again, we'll look at that as we get through, uh, through the book. But anyway, th- there's kind of like an introduction to that where he's talking about the law. Now, the next very big point, and again, the, lo- the idea at point nine, law, grace, faith, justification. Again, uh, the Protestant Reformation, Paul's teaching, we're saved by faith, we're justified by faith, uh, we're saved by grace. But then there's the law. Paul writes, if you look down here, uh, oh boy, this is a big topic right here. Uh, Tick tock, tick tock. Here we go. Uh, Point A, this has been labeled a conflict with other New Testament writings right here. James's view of the law and Paul's view of the law. The laws mentioned in these paragraphs, I've got it written right here, those verses I've just read, those there they are written down again. Uh, the law, point C, the law that in James is simply assumed to be known and understood. Point D, James, like Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, has no interest in ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law, but is insistent on the moral commands of the law. Look at the back page. It's the, uh, it would be page 7. And there you've got a reference, and I copied this out of my commentary, just took a picture of it, but this is James, and all these references here that he makes are correlated in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, or Jesus' teachings in Matthew and Luke right there. So it's very similar. Now, the point with that is James is not using Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or the, Matthew, uh, the text of Matthew as his literary source. He's not like quoting it. It's not like word for word quoting it. It's like he's got a copy of the Sermon on the Mount and he's like, yes, reteaching it or explaining it. He's approaching his conflicts that within the church's situations with the same view of the law and, and ends up with the same conclusions that Jesus has. In other words, they're both going to the law, looking at it the same way and making application from it. So he's not going, it's, not like, it's not like the law jesus interprets it and james interprets jesus it's like you've got the law jesus interprets and makes the application james interprets and makes the application and those applications are the same if that collect connection makes sense i'm going to turn the page uh five the law in the book of james is the foundation for the ethical commands there's many things there that we could say look at point g Paul is against the works of the law but paul totally expects the fruit of the law watch this connection when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he could be talking about the fruit of the law. Uh, Galatians 2, 16 and 5, 6, yet we know, Paul writes in the negative, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So you're justified by faith. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. You're not going to be saved or justified by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Now that's Paul writing. But he also writes in Galatians 5, 14, 18, 22, and 23, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now the whole law that you're not under is fulfilled in something written in the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. To fulfill the whole law, take its moral teaching, love your neighbor as yourself, for example, and do that, and you can forget about all the written rituals. You've, you're fulfilling the intention of the law. And it doesn't just mean that's the only one. It'd be other principles like that, and I think James is drawing from those. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Uh, James would write the similar things when he talks about the Christian life. Um, uh, yeah, go to, go to wisdom, number 11, wisdom. Uh, wisdom is, uh, uh, man, I, I don't have time to develop it right there, but it, in the Old Testament, it almost takes on a personification, almost like a, a near deity position of wisdom, being with God when he created. It's like wisdom could be the second member of the Trinity, or wisdom could be the Spirit of God. And that's where we've got this right here, uh, point f wisdom is manifested in the watch this wisdom is manifested in the believer remember just read the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness self-control from galatians as paul wrote that's the fruit of the spirit if you say the fruit of the law or the fruit of wisdom the fruit of the word the fruit of the spirit look at this right here wisdom that comes from above chapter 3 verse 17 is humble desire to do good works pure peace loving considerate submissive full of mercy good fruit impartial sincere that is the fruit of the Spirit, but now it's the fruit of wisdom. So in Paul, fruit of the Spirit in James is fruit of wisdom. In Paul, the law could be considered the same thing as wisdom or the Spirit. As it, it may be. So it's like you understand 45 AD, and then Paul comes along and develops his theology and uses his, his, his vocabulary. The vocabulary is not going to be the same, but the concept, you may call this the the law of the spirit or the fruit of the spirit or the fruit of the law or the law the 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 spirit of the law that gives freedom we're we're overlapping concepts with different vocabulary potentially so there's no there's no conflict with this and i've got to quit and you can read through that other things here for example uh right below point f where it says wisdom that comes from above wisdom that is of the earth or worldly Wisdom that is, and it's quoted, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic manifests as selfish, contentious, disorder, and every evil practice. That matches the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. So now, wisdom that is worldly is the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. It's the same list. So again, uh, by by point right there, as we read through this, we'll make more connections. uh, But... I think it's, it's fun, enlightening to see this as being written before Paul's vocabulary was on the table. But James is not writing before theology. He's not writing without theology. He's writing with some very assumed theology based on the law of the Old Testament interpreted by Jesus and just presenting it. And when Paul comes on the scene, he does the same thing but develops some vocabulary for it and expands it and becomes more theoretical on it and... Uh, I think they're parallel. I think they're in agreement. We can see in the book of Acts three different times where James and Paul meet 
and they're in agreement every time in Jerusalem. I'll pray, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be done. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into this. We ask that you'd lead and guide us as we go through the book of James. We ask that these things would strengthen our hearts and change our behaviors on the things we think about and to do the things you've called us to. Again, Father, we do thank you for this, and thank you for the promise that you're jealous for us and will take us to the place you'd call us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here.